Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the seventh chapter. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And the considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the Gospel of the Lord. All different families have different ways of doing gifts at Christmas time. That's one thing everybody sort of thinks. Everyone's just like us and they do it the same as us. But if you've spent enough time with somebody else at the holidays, you do see things are done differently. Some people unwrap presents on Christmas Eve before church, some after church, some wait till Christmas morning before church or after church. Well, whenever we would unwrap our presents at my house for Christmas when I was growing up, we would always do them at the same time my brother and I. At his stack, I'd have my stack, we'd be unwrapping them. But when it came time for the big present, we all know that there usually is a big one, the one that mom and dad had to have a few conversations about. Are we really gonna get this for them or not? And each kid had to get something comparable. When we get to the big one, we would each unwrap them at the same time. We would both, my brother Tim and I, unwrap our big gifts as the other one was unwrapping his. And that was with the express goal of avoiding the appearance of inequity, right? Imagine it. I was kind of a selfish little boy. I do remember comparing myself to my brother and what he had and got a lot when I was a kid. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. But if we didn't do it that way, I would have compared it. Open Tim opens his gift, I see it, ooh, that looks pretty good, and then I open mine and I think, oof, I know how much that cost at Walmart and I know how much mine cost. His cost more, I got the short end of the stick here, right? Not fair, it's always sort of the words in the back of a kid's mind when other people are getting presents and so is he. You don't want to have that appearance of favoritism and the anger of a kid being slighted, right? That's bad enough on Christmas, when there's a bunch of kids unwrapping presents, sometimes he comes out even worse at birthday parties, doesn't it? When one little kid has his friends over, and if they're young enough and they don't understand what's going on, well, wait a minute, why is that guy over at the head of the table unwrapping all these presents, and I haven't gotten to unwrap one? What kind of a racket is this, right? We've all probably seen that in kids, if not having experienced it ourselves firsthand as a child. Consider these words of Paul from Romans chapter 12. He tells us, Christians, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Now, that's easy advice to take to heart, isn't it? At least, if all things are going well for us. If life is pretty good for us at a given point of time, it's easy to be the shoulder to cry on for the person that's having trouble. It's easy to be happy for him when he's going through something good. But it's a little harder to do that, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, especially when we never feel like we're the one that gets to rejoice, when we're never the person that is doing the joyous response to something good happening. 
right? Kids can be magnanimous towards other kids at their birthday party. To use that analogy again, right? If a kid goes to somebody else's birthday party, he can be okay. Not unwrapping any of the presents, not having the cake say his name on it, not being the one to get to blow out the candles, because finally, at least if he's old enough, he'll know that it's going to be his day eventually. It'll roll around to where it's his birthday, his party, his cake, and his presents. But I want you to imagine if that day never came, if he never got to have the party, never got to have the friends over the presents and the cake, if he went to all of the other kids' celebrations but never had one of his own. Well, that feeling that that kid would have, I would be kind of surprised if there was nobody in our gospel lesson in the town of Nain, if there was nobody who had that feeling themselves as they witnessed that miracle of Jesus raising that boy from the dead. Now think about it. This is not a parable. This is a healing miracle, right? So these are real people. This actually happened. And I bet you, I'm quite certain actually, that that was not the only woman that had lost a son in or around Nain in recent history, in the history surrounding the time that Jesus did this. Perhaps there was another woman who lost a son or a daughter. If you was the only one, maybe it wasn't their only child. Perhaps it was several months before. It might have even been a couple of days or even, think about it, hours before this one or maybe an adjacent town. And now think of it, it says in the gospel there, everybody marveled at what they saw after Jesus raised this boy from the dead. And I have the question, did anybody who witnessed that, who was marveling, have that little voice in the back of their mind saying, why them and not me? Why did she get her son raised and I didn't get my son raised? Why did he get to be raised? And not my brother's kid. We were just as sad. It was just as terrible. If such people had these thoughts at the time, I think it's also safe to assume they didn't wish ill on that woman. They didn't wish ill on her son, right? They didn't wish that Jesus did not do that magnificent miracle that he did. But they did, if they thought this way, perhaps wish that, well, that they could have such a gift as that. What a miraculous gift it was, wasn't it? This miracle. Such raw power and goodness of Jesus on display. You can be happy for others, and most of us, I think all of us certainly are. But happiness for other people does have an upper limit, doesn't it, sometimes? I think it's not hard for us to imagine that there were such people who witnessed this miracle, standing around, observing it, taking it in, it's not hard for us to imagine because, number one, we do know human nature, and number two, we know ourselves and our own thoughts and our own feelings. I know about the commandment, the commandments, two of them actually, you shall not covet. I teach those for a living. Of course I know them. And what's more, by the Holy Spirit's help, I'm learning, the older I get, to be actually content with what God has given me when he has given it to me, the way he's given it to me, and the amount in which he has given it to me. But, like all Christians, the old man, the old Adam is still inside of me. I'm still a sinner. 
And there is that little voice in the back of my head that says, it's okay to put conditions and limits on rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so, when I think about the widow at Nain and what she got to have her son back from the dead, I must admit that I'm tempted to have mixed thoughts, to have selfish thoughts, to have greedy thoughts. And maybe not today. It's not quite as much of a temptation now as it was when maybe I was a little younger, but definitely in the past, in my personal life, there have been times when a miracle would have been very nice. There have been times when an immediate, clear answer to a prayer and a specific yes to the thing that I was asking God for would have been absolutely wonderful. Sometimes, though, it didn't happen. More often than not, even, it seems like it did not happen. After trying all the options to bring it about, after praying without ceasing, as Paul tells us to do, seemingly in those days and hours, nothing was the response, or a very clear no. And in those moments, the thought that I had to myself was, if I'm being honest, what's the big idea, God? What's wrong here? I know you love me from your word. I know, moreover, you can do all things from your word. And this thing I'm asking, it's a lot less than raising somebody from the dead. Can I just get a little yes here, please? And in the moment of weaknesses like this, I don't see God's love and power in those miracles, those beautiful stories of what happened in the Bible, but instead I see an opportunity for resentment and even bitterness at God. Now, if up until this point I haven't even begun to describe you, that's good, right? If you've never had even an inkling of a thought like this, that's great. And guess what? I'm going to let you teach the Bible class for the next two months and to tell the rest of us how to get to this point in life. That's a good point to be in. We're all sinners, but not all of us struggle with the same sins, right? Some people do have trouble with resentment more than others. But if you've ever heard or read the Lord's miracles, ones like this and the rest of them, and your first thought, or at least a close second, is thinking about your own lack, how you haven't had something even remotely similar to this, well then, I'll say this, you, like me, are missing the point. Yes, the miracle was for that boy, and it was for his mother. They were the first and obvious recipients of that good and gracious act of our Lord. They had the chief immediate benefit, but here's the thing, that miracle was not just for them. They weren't the only ones that had the blessing from what Jesus did that day. The ripple effects of that miracle at Nain and all the rest of them that our Lord did during his earthly ministry stretch far and they go wide. Their blessings are exponential, even if we can't even see them immediately for what they truly are. You see, this miracle teaches us and the other two resurrection miracles that are recorded for us in the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the atonement for sin, but he's not just the atonement for the sins of the world. He is the destroyer, the champion, the victor over sin's biggest symptom, death 
itself. That reality is true. It's true theologically. It's true historically. And to have it, it must be believed. And to be believed, right, to believe that Jesus is the champion over sin and death, it must be witnessed. It must be first seen and heard. And so no better way to teach a fundamental truth and reality like that than by proving it, right? Jesus proved it on Easter Sunday with his own resurrection, and he even began proving it before that day when he raised this widow's son and the other people that he raised. There was a real woman who benefited, a real son who was raised, but we, here now, 2,000 years removed, benefit in this way. We get to witness who our Lord is and what he can do. The witnesses, the actual people in that crowd, they saw it with their own eyes. The evangelists, God blessed them, recorded it in their books, which we now have in the Bible, tell us about it. And we, because they did that, can hear about it. We can hear who Jesus is, hear what he does. And hearing it, we believe too. We trust in this victor over death, this destroyer of sin in all of its awful wake. By this account and the ones like it, our faith is created. It is strengthened and defended that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he has taken death captive, completely mastered it. So, if you ever are tempted, I would say this. Don't get hung up on not being the individual, the one who's chosen for a blessed miracle like this. We don't all get to be the widow at Nain. We don't all get to be her son or any other miracle recipient for that matter. But the truth is, finally, it doesn't matter. We have the promise of the greater thing that the miracle itself is pointing toward. Resurrection from the grave on the last day to an eternal glory with God and everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. For if you keep this promise before you and hold on to it with all that you are, then surely you will have your day when on that great last day, Jesus himself says to you, my child arise. Amen. We remain seated for the offering.